0: Now, those two verses, we've really been studying them for the last couple of weeks, but they are a summary of what we have been studying for months now. Really, they're verse 11, or, or week 11 and week 12 of our Healthy Church series, and they provide for us a summary of what Peter is getting at. He has called us and been teaching gospel doctrine. He has established what God has done to save us. He has established the work that Jesus Christ has did on our behalf that we might be called righteous, that we might be acceptable and pleasing to God. He established through the first uh, chapter, first two chapters, uh, exactly what that was. And, and he established for us that gospel doctrine. In that gospel doctrine, he established for us a gospel identity. He helped us see that it's not just a religious set of beliefs that we hold outside. But it's something that God is doing from within us, that he is coming into us and he's changing us and he's making us new. That this is not just some religious practice that we come and attend, but it's the work of God within us, this gospel identity. And it starts individually. It starts in who I am in Christ and who you are in Christ. But it never stays that way. In fact, he leads us to this place where he begins to help us see the corporate identity, the gospel identity community that we were never meant to be saved to be alone that we were never meant to be saved and just on our own kind of floundering through life and hoping we get it right and hoping we see God's blessings that we were to be a people always together living life doing life together blessing God uh, or blessing one another and glorifying God together and and that's exactly what he leads to it's not just about who we are individually and corporately it's not just about what God has done But Peter also shows us along the way and calls us along the way to gospel activity, to doing something in light of who we are, to doing something in light of the purpose of God within us and in light of the mission he's called us to. And so as God's people, he calls us to that. I mean, this is Peter saying, beloved, I urge you, I call you to this. I plead with you to live in this way, to do this. We we should be a people whose lives are holy, who Whose lives represent the very God who saved us. We should be a people whose lives so fully and, and more fully all the time look more and more like Christ. In Christ. In him, we are made a people who worship God. And it's not to be done in secret, it's not to be done in silent. In fact, he says that even when they accuse you, even when they revile you, there should be that you should continue in this. You should continue doing this so that they are eventually led to worship alongside you. That's His call on us. We do that, as has been described in this passage, by abstaining from sin, by, by doing battle with the, the desires of the flesh that do war against our soul, and by doing good, by living, living honorably, by, by, by doing things that honor and glorify God. See, we that's who we're supposed to be. We're to be a people who don't sin not to maintain our righteousness we should abstain from sin not to to attain our righteousness or not to earn our righteousness Jesus did that for you when Jesus looks at you when God the father looks upon you he sees one who has cleansed white as snow he sees one whose sin has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't abstain from sin to earn our righteousness. We abstain from sin as an act of worship that leads others to worship. It is is an act of worship that is also the mission. It's the the mission He's given us to lead others to see Him, to to, to lead others to know Him. And so we abstain from sin, but we don't just abstain from sin. we, We do good. We revel in doing good. We strive to live honorably. Again, not to make ourselves good. Jesus did that for you. You are able to do good works. You are able to do good things because He has made you good. We do them now as an act of worship that leads others to worship in word and in deed. That's the call that Peter is giving us. That's the the presentation he's been laying out for us. But in this lies a question that that I think has to be answered. In this lies a a question that that I can't help but consider as we talk about being a healthy church. What happens when we don't? What happens when, when we sing songs about Jesus, my... My heart will only ever run to you. I will sing no other name. But then in our life, we sing all kinds of other names. I mean, what happens when we don't live up to what we've been called to do? Should we turn a blind eye? Do we even have a place? Does the church even have a place or a right to get involved in one another's lives in this way? I mean, I mean, just consider Where Peter is heading, he's he's about to give command upon command upon command for the next two and a half, three chapters, three and a half chapters. He's about to give command upon command upon command about how we're to live good lives, about what it looks like to live a holy life in in a society that condemns you. What happens when we don't follow those commands? What happens when we find a... A person who comes to our church, who's regularly involved in our church, we find out that their marriage is falling apart because the husband is committing adultery. Do we just act like we don't know anything? Don't want to go that. That's their private life. I I don't want to get involved in their. That's kind of messy and it's uncomfortable. Do. Do we just turn a blind eye? What happens when, when somebody in our church is, is so disconnected, is so distant from us that together our lives can't bring an honor, glory and honor to God? That together our lives can't emulate who He is in the world? That we can't be blessed and bless them? What happens? What, what, what happens when Someone in the church, someone close to you in the church, a brother or sister in Christ, sins against you, offends you, hurts you. Do we just make excuses? Well, you know, you know so-and-so. That's just the way they are. Do we just look at them and let them be? Do we let them sit in their brokenness? What happens? What happens when a brother or sister's life does not look as holy as God is holy? What responsibility do we have when a brother or sister in Christ is not living out his purpose in the church? What happens when a brother or sister in Christ is not living out his mission in the world? What do we do? Does the church have a right? Does the church have a responsibility, or even does the church have authority to get involved? Or are we supposed to just step back and, you know, we're we're a church on Sunday morning, but, you know, Monday through Saturday, they, well, really Sunday afternoon through Sunday morning, they're, they're really on their own. We get a, we get a good hour and a half together, you know. We we can really fellowship then. We can we we can really glorify God then. We'll just really stick to that hour and a half that we have together. But do we have a right, a responsibility, and authority? And the short answer is yes, yes to all of those. The church has authority and responsibility to exercise church discipline in order to call one another to live. Out-worship that others will be led to worship the one true God. Yes. And I would add, maybe maybe just to be completely fair with our series, to be completely honest with our series, if a church is going to be healthy, we don't just have a responsibility and authority to exercise church discipline. We have a need. You get that, a need. It is necessary for our lives together, for the glory of God in this world. For the good of his people in this world, we have a need for church discipline. But that's the short answer. It'd be great. You know, I know you're thinking, well, okay, well, good. We're not, no, no. We've got about 25 more minutes, maybe a little more, and we'll be doing this next week. See, it's so important to me that as we came to this place where Peter so clearly called us to action, I think we need to take a couple of weeks, take an aside, and. And spend some time studying over the next couple of weeks what it looks like to exercise church discipline, what the church is supposed to do when we don't run after Jesus alone. What are we supposed to do? And so we're going to be studying and, and looking at uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 or 15 through 20. We're going to be answering the the what, the why, and the how of church discipline. It'll it'll help you understand our position and our practice in church discipline. But more importantly, much more importantly, it will help you understand the biblical perspective and it'll help you learn what the Bible teaches about church discipline, what Jesus expects of his church when we don't. And so we're going to do that. So if you would read with me, read along with me, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's victory, man. That's a good thing. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector. And I'm going to pause right there. I want you to I want, I want you to hear that how they would have heard it. So a gentile was a person who was never a part of the covenant. They were never they were never in on God's people. They were never part of the 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 people that God had chosen out of the world. So they would have seen this a, a gentile, someone who has never been part of the covenant, tax collector was an Israelite who had become com- compliant or Or uh, treacherous, really, they had become uh, friends of the Roman government. And so they were rebels, they were traitors. They, they, They were either to treat them as someone who had never been part of the covenant or someone who had traded in the covenant for something more pleasurable, something they deemed better. Treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors. I don't think I have to tell you that that's not necessarily the same as treating one another. You get that there's a distinction there, right? You you see there's a difference. And I'm not telling you, go out and be jerks. I'm just telling you, we should notice that there is and should be a distinction. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done. For them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I'm just gonna do this. We're not gonna spend much time here today, but I just want you to see that that if you have ever quoted this verse, for where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am there among you, as if in some way that you need to be with the people of God so that you can experience God. Don't miss out on Jesus always being with you. Right. If, if we take that verse and we extract it out of the Scripture and, and, and don't compare it to anything else that the Bible says, it would be easy to assume that we must always be together if we we're ever going to know Jesus' presence in our life. That's not what it says. And, and there's a lot of Christians who think that they can come together and because they can get two or three people to agree on something that they can motivate or that they can leverage their, their influence against God, get Him to do what He wants, and that in some way there's some special presence of God that you're going to experience apart from that you wouldn't experience apart from them. Now, please don't hear me saying that we don't experience God together, we do. But that does not mean that you are on your own when you're not together with believers. He is always with you. Go and make disciples, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is our promise. Now, that said, let's just keep going. Let's let's deal with the issue of church. Discipline. This is probably one of the most prominent talked about passages as it comes to church discipline. It's not the only one by a long stretch. People immediately, when you say church discipline, I think people immediately go to this passage. They immediately think of this or possibly 1 Corinthians 5. But there's a number of passages. Church discipline is all the way through the Scripture in the New Testament if you listen for it, if you're looking for it. The reality is this isn't the only one. And, and it doesn't even give us everything we should know or could know about church discipline. It doesn't give us black and white detail of everything that we'd like to know. Okay, well, this is a sin that you discipline and this is not. So if it's as bad as adultery, then you got to do something. But if it's something minor like stealing a 3-cent piece of gum from the gas station, I stole a bunch of those maybe i may i may be upwards of about 2 bucks worth of theft is that something we don't get that kind of detail in this passage but but we do get a very general very solid foundation on which we can begin to act in wisdom and so that's what we're going to look at it for that's what we're going to strive to understand And from it, we are able to build principles that will guide us as we strive to be a holy people of God living in an unholy culture so that we might shine for His glory and that people might see our good deeds and worship God. So what is church discipline? It's the first question that we're going to answer. What is church discipline? I think in this passage that we can see church discipline is Jesus' plan to maintain unity and purity within His church in order that we may continue to enjoy fellowship with Him and each other. It's long, let me read it again. Church discipline is Jesus' plan to maintain unity and purity within His church in order that we may continue to enjoy fellowship and, uh, with Him and each other. Notice this isn't just about this isn't just about us getting along. It is in part about us getting along, but it's also about removing sin. We are God's people. We've been brought together. There should be unity in Christ, but in Christ there should be holiness as well. These two things go together. This is Jesus' plan for it. It's, it's his concept. He's the one that came up with this. That we may continue to walk in fellowship with God and with each other. See, this is the process. This is the process that that, that we use to, to make sure that the light of the gospel is shining into the dark nooks and crannies of each other's lives. There's a reality that in Christ, we come into Him and we become Christians and He says we're righteous. But we're not completely Christ-like. And there's a process by which He begins to grow us and shape us and mold us and polish us that His image is reflecting more and more from us. The power is the gospel. The process is church discipline. And sometimes that discipline is is really just very organic. Sometimes that discipline is just, just very natural and organic and sometimes it's more formal. Brothers and sisters, this is what He's chosen for us. This is what He's commanded to us. Jay Adams wrote a book about church discipline. And he titled it this, Handbook of Church Discipline. I, I, that sounds really academic. It's actually a really good book. I would commend it to you. I've got it down here in the front. And if you'd like to take a look at it, I'd be happy for you to. Handbook of Church Discipline, A Right and Privilege of Every Church Member. You see, Jesus has come up with this. He's calling us to it. This is the right of the church to exercise church discipline. The reality is, if a person were to come to you and say, brother, sister, your sin is evident. Here's your fault. The very last response that a brother or sister should give to that is you have no right. Jesus gave them the right. Your assembly, your belonging to, your coming to Christ and being built together as a spiritual house, as a holy and royal priesthood, as a chosen race, a holy nation, a treasured possession. That gave them the right in Christ. And the reality is, I think, if that is our response, it's because we don't recognize the privilege. The Father disciplines those He loves. If you are not disciplined, it is because you're an illegitimate child. That's what Hebrews 12 teaches us. Illegitimate. You don't really belong to Him. There's appearance. There's there's maybe some loose connection, some superficial connection connection but you're illegitimate it is a privilege it is a blessing it is an honor it it is it is the love of god displayed in tangible ways that a person would care enough to come to you and call you to righteousness call you to repentance this is the plan of christ to maintain unity and purity within this church. And as I said, sometimes sometimes that looks like a a formal process and sometimes it's less formal. The less formal process, the less formal, it's, it's happening all the time, should be happening all the time in our Christian life. We call that formative church discipline. Formative church discipline is the ongoing process of helping one another live holy lives. It's everyday discipleship. So whether you're getting together and studying uh, doctrine, whether you're getting together and studying the Bible or praying together, or you're just hanging out and fellowshipping together, by your desire to pursue holiness, you are encouraging others to pursue holiness. I really appreciate what Mark Dever says in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He writes this, it is... No, it is, is formative church discipline. It is the stake that helps the tree grow in the right direction. The braces on the teeth, the extra set of wheels on the bicycle, it is the repeated instruction to keep your mouth closed when you are eating, or the regular exhortation to be careful about your words. Formative discipline refers to those things that shape people as they grow emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. We exercise this type of discipline all the time. Every Sunday when you come to church, there is a formative type of church discipline taking place. As we stand together and sing and worship together, together we are drawing one another's attention to God. As you sit under the preaching of His Word in this time, worshiping Him, there's sin that's confronted and and there is hope presented in the Gospel. And you are challenged to live in, in, in a correct and proper response what He's done. Our lives are constantly, consistently, regularly, if we are connected to the church, our lives are being shaped by God through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His people. That is formative day-in, day-out church discipline. I hope you're experiencing it. I hope you're recognizing it. And if we practice this well, hopefully we never have to move to the next stage, which is called corrective Church discipline is just another way to perceive. You see, when Jesus says this, He's like, "Hey, I know you're sinning. I know you're going to sin. I know you're going know- to deal with this. But it should happen very naturally between brothers and sisters. If, if there's a fault, just go to your brother by yourself and make sure that you let him know, let her know. But, but if they don't hear you, if they don't respond to you, then there's another step. There's a corrective church discipline that must must take place. Corrective church discipline is the process of restoring a Christian trapped in sin. It's going to your brother or sister and seeking to get them back. Sin has pulled them away. It has divided them from the fold. It has removed them from the fellowship of God and man. And you care enough to go to them and and pursue them and bring them back back and if they don't hear you you care enough to bring others with you Extreme, uh, 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 growing the expression of light in their life bringing more light into the darkness always going always pursuing them, seeking to see them restored. We, we need both of these we need these both to be occurring regularly. We need them we need the ongoing discipleship, and when we go astray, we need people who love us enough to pursue us. Let me just tell you now. Let me give you permission now. If you see me sinning, if you see my life beginning to be marked more by unrepentance, than repentance, come to me. Please come to me. Every one of you. Hear me. I long for this. And I hope as we learn what discipline is, you... We'll learn to long for it as well. We need it. If we are going to be the healthy church that leads others to worship by our worship, we need it. And that really begins to bleed into the next question Why? Why exercise church discipline? Why? In this passage, I've, I've broken out a few things. I think there's much more that could be said, but I've broken out a few things that we'll move through fairly quickly. We exercise church discipline. Because we still sin. Now, I know I didn't shock anybody by that that statement, right? You know you still sin. Thanks, Captain Obvious, for pointing it out. I get that it's obvious, but that's exactly where Jesus started. If your brother sins. Now, I'm not one that goes against Jesus much. I I strive to do my best to kind of go in line with Christ, but I think he could just as easily have said, when your brother sins against you. Because in all likelihood, if you've been in the church longer than a day, you've had someone sin against you. You've had someone actually do something that was not just offensive to you, but that was sinful towards you. More than likely, you have stories of having been hurt by members of the church. I, I mean, the passage that we open with from 1 Peter. Peter, he's telling us that this is, this is an ongoing battle. And he says to do battle, to do war with the desires of the flesh. They're waging war against your soul. They get up every day and do this battle. In in Romans chapter 7, Paul confesses that he is a wretched man. Now, I don't know if you know about Romans chapter 7 much. I I mean, Paul, he's like, I know what I should do, and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, and I do it. And I'm wretched, and what's my hope? And he says, like, my hope is in Christ. And, and, and here's the thing about this is that by the time Paul writes the letter of Romans, he's 20 years into his ministry. He's been a believer for 20 years. He's written books of the Bible already, about five of them. This is Romans is probably his sixth letter that he wrote. He's gone to Syria and planted churches. He's gone to Asia Minor and planted churches. He's gone to Greece. He's probably in Greece at the time. He's writing the book of Romans. And he is planting churches and God is using him. Powerful and majestic in mighty ways. Ways that we look back and it's like, wow, Paul. And he says, what a wretched man I am. If he can say he's a wretched man, Let's own it, right? We still sin. And because we still sin, we need discipline. That's Jesus' answer. His answer for our ongoing sin issue is each other. It's one another being closely connected enough that when your sin becomes evident, someone's close enough to actually do something about it. That's not the way we do church anymore, Seth. I mean, we've already talked about it. Sunday morning's really church, right? That's when church happens and the rest of the week is mine. And Isn't that just the new normal? Shouldn't be. We exercise church discipline because we still sin. When you quit sinning, when I quit sinning, we can quit exercising church discipline. Until that occurs, we've got a job to do. We exercise church discipline because it calls us to repentance. Repentance is the whole point of this passage. It's not not about getting rid of the person who bothers you or who has hurt your feelings, right? The whole point of the passage is that you care enough to pursue the person who is in sin and get them to quit sinning. He says it. If if your brother hears you, you have gained your brother. If if he listens, you've gained him. If he doesn't listen, bring others hoping that he might listen. If he doesn't listen, bring more that he might listen. The listening is repenting. is, is admitting you're right and I'm wrong. Now, I know that's difficult. I like to be right. It's about calling people to live in such a way that God's holiness, His image, His righteousness is reflected off of us. You see, corrective church discipline begins. It begins where the practice of repentance ends, and it ends where repentance begins. If a person is unrepentant, if their life is marked by unrepentance, and so we're not talking about going and correcting every little sin. If a person's life is marked by unrepentance and it's difficult to know whether they're truly a follower of Christ because the way they live, then we need to go to them and we need to call them to repent. We, the church, need to go to them. We need to pursue them. And when they come to repentance, we welcome them. We love on them. We we walk in fellowship with them. This discipline, it ends where repentance begins. See, Martin Luther said this is the this is the mark of the Christian's life. It's the way that you know you're a Christian, it's the way that you live as a Christian. He he wrote in the first of the 95 theses that started the Reformation, he wrote that all of a Christian's life is repentance. That means that every day when I wake up, from now to the day I die, or Jesus comes back, every day when I wake up. My responsibility is to recognize that my flesh has desires that would replace God. That that, that I would devote myself to everything but God. Repentance is looking at those desires and saying they are not good. God alone is to be the central devotion of my life. And everything that flows out of that devotion is good and right and, and, and holy. Now that's the call. That's the call. And when our lives don't look like that, we should long for people to come after us. We should desire for people to come after us because that's what Jesus instituted this for. We exercise church discipline because it leads us to repentance. It leads us to, be, to, to live lives that honor God, that demonstrate His holiness. We exercise church discipline to enjoy fellowship with God and each other. Look at this. It says, if someone sins against you, now, I'm just going to say this real quickly up front that some of the some of the manuscripts don't they don't add the words against you. Some of the manuscripts don't show that, and so some commentators think that those two words were added later. But I don't think either way whether they're there or not, they don't really change the tone of the passage because sin is divisive. It hurts us regardless of whether it's directly against you or indirectly offered up. I mean, consider Adam and Eve. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, they are naked and without shame. They They are, man, they're just living the life. And then they sin. And what happens? They cover up. It's the very first tangible expression of sin is to recognize their nakedness and to cover up, to be divided, to begin to hide first from one another. You see, sin is divisive. I recognized this just this morning. Even as I was preaching in the first service, I recognized how true this really is. I I had a friend from years and years ago. <clears throat> we had been as well as before this church plant even began. We had been in uh, a small group together. We we talked and shared and studied the scriptures together. We we were close. In fact, I would have called him my best friend at that time. I mean, I would have thought that we were we were tight. But there was always this distance. I always felt this resistance to go too far. And I just thought that's just, you know, this is as far as we can go. And I didn't realize until just about three or four months ago he came to me and he said, "Seth, I got a confession to make. When I was calling you my best friend, when we were hanging out, when we were doing life together, when we were so dependent upon one another, when we were studying the Word together, when we were talking about you planting this church together, when we were, when we were walking through this together." I was actively in an adulterous relationship, several adulterous relationships with women other than wife. I wouldn't get too close because I didn't want you to find out. He didn't commit that sin against me, but it hurt our relationship. Not when he came and confessed, but it kept us from enjoying the fullness of the fellowship that God intends for his people. And so while I didn't feel some direct hurt or pain, there's a reality that we were not enjoying all that God had for us. His indirect sin against me, His direct sin against His wife, hurt us. It divides people. For that very reason, God hates it. But it doesn't just divide us from people, it divides us from Him. You see, we can't miss in this moment, we can't miss that there is also an eternal component. What we what we see here tangibly, horizontally in our relationships and an immediate uh, uh, separation as we sin. When we see that, a, there's an expression of what happens between us and God. You see, I think, I think if, if we're to take this passage, I think it seems that Jesus is saying when someone becomes aware of their brother or sister's sin, Not when that sin is committed against them, but but when someone becomes aware of their brother or sister's sin, we need to exercise discipline on their behalf because not only are they not enjoying the fellowship of the church, they are not enjoying fully the fellowship that they have or should have, could have, with the God who created, who saved, and who will one day restore and make all things new. We should be so concerned with the people in our life that know that we know as brothers and sisters that we long for them to enjoy the fellowship that God has given us with one another and Him. See, so sin, it's, it's never committed in a vacuum. It is never committed in a vacuum. It is always going to separate you from God and man. And God says, go after them. Go after them. Pursue them like I pursued you. Run towards them. Bring light into their darkness. Shine on their behalf that they might see their fault and repent. That they might come back. See, church discipline, when it's done right, church discipline is not intended to throw people out. It is not about getting rid of people. It is about keeping people in keeping people in fellowship, keeping people in walk, in step with the gospel where they are best served and and, and best blessed by God. This is what Jesus has for us. So we exercise church discipline to enjoy fellowship fully with God and with man. And finally, we exercise church discipline because it's just not advice. Or it's not just advice but a command you see Jesus didn't come along and say hey if your brother sins against you I got a good idea why don't you try this out it works for me maybe it'll work for you this isn't a best practice it's not a methodology that we can employ if we decide we feel like it. it is a command he is telling us to do this Jesus has given us the authority by giving us the command. He is saying, Go and do it. And then he's saying, Don't just, he's not just giving us the authority, he's giving us the right because he's saying, Go and do it. The reality is, if we don't go, if we do not pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ and church discipline, then now, because of what Jesus has commanded, we're actually sinning against them. If you know somebody, if you know somebody that is a brother or sister in Christ that professes to be a believer and follower of Jesus and their life is marked by unrepentance, you must go to them. You must pursue them. You must shine the light of the gospel into the midst of their darkness until they, until they come back. Until they reject Jesus. Until they repent. That's our call. You see, the authority comes from Him. And the phrase, again, I mean, this finds its roots in, in a heavenly power that happens among us. As Jesus was talking to Peter just a couple of chapters before, He's actually talking to all of his disciples. And he, he says, what do they say about me? Who do they say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter commen- or, or Jesus commends Peter and he says, yes, you are right. But that truth isn't, that, that, that confession, that truth that you have come by, it's not given to you by men. It has been revealed to you by the Father in heaven. And he says, upon this confession, upon this truth, I am going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to give you access. And I'm going to give you authority. What you bind in heaven, or what you bind on earth, is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The only other time that that phrase is used is now, just a couple of chapters later, as Jesus takes the access and authority that was given to Peter and gives it to the church. What we bind here is bound in heaven. What we loose here is loosed in heaven. So we have a responsibility, an eternal and divine responsibility to stand as God's representatives, calling one another to holy, and righteous lives that lead others to, to honor and glorify Him, even if today they're reviling you, even if today they are accusing you, that there will come a day that some would worship Him. We do this. Jesus didn't give it to a special group of leaders. He didn't give it to a certain group of of uh, special people in the church. In fact, the truth is, in this passage, the church even isn't even really completely assembled. He is speaking about His people. We have this responsibility. We have this authority. We have been given this right by Christ. It is not the concept of some puritanical, legalistic group of people that, oh, sin makes me uncomfortable, so I don't want to be around it. It's about a people who have been given a love for one another, that they will fight for the goodness of God on the behalf of each other. Church discipline is a good thing. When done right, it is positive, not negative. It is the expression of deep care, deep concern, deep love for the bride of Christ, the church family. Let me me just say this in, in, in that... There is a reality that if you, if your life is marked by unrepentance and you don't have anyone disciplining you, challenging you to repent, then you have likely either separated yourself so far from the church that no one can see it, or the church is failing and sinning against you my hope for this church is that we would love one another enough to be close. To be close enough that we could see the unrepentance and that we would care enough to actually do something about it. See, because church discipline is the expression of our great desire to see God most glorified. In fact, I think the reason that our culture is not happy it doesn't like church discipline, I think, my opinion, because we desire things in the world more than we desire the glory of God. My hope for this church is that we will learn together to desire His glory most fully. And when received well, when received well, church discipline maintains, rebuilds unity and purity in the bride of Christ, that together we can stand and worship. Lead others to worship the one true God. Let's pray.